0: Unsolved, Unbelievable, and Unjust, a podcast where we dive into the most chilling of all cold cases and take a look at crimes with facts that are so crazy that they are, well, unbelievable. And lastly, we examine instances where the justice system has terribly failed us. I'm Ashley, your host, and thanks for tuning in. true crime lovers, this is Ashley, and welcome to the very first episode of Unsolved, Unbelievable, and Unjust. Okay, so since it's the first episode, I wanted to start off by taking you through um, just a little bit about what the show is going to be like. Uh, Each week, we're going to cover a true crime case. Uh, We're going to go in the order of the titles, so we're going to go with Unsolved first, Unbelievable, and then Unjust. Each episode is going to be about 40 minutes long, and I'll be putting out one episode a week. Um, Each Tuesday will be a new episode. With that being said, let's get right into it. Toronto Hospital for Sick Children, more commonly referred to as Sick Kids, is Canada's foremost children's hospital. However, between 1980 and early 1981, there was a total of 43 suspicious deaths in the cardiac unit wards 4A and 4B. To this day, no one knows for sure who or what caused the deaths of those babies. Suspicion around the substantial increase in deaths in the Toronto Sick Kids Cardiac Ward started as early as September 1980. However, an internal investigation into the matter in the fall of 1980 determined that the deaths were due to natural causes, as the infants had suffered from serious heart conditions, which had brought them into the hospital in the first place. By January 1981, a similar hospital committee had assembled to investigate the deaths of 22 babies who had died in the cardiac ward at this time. The committee found that 15 of the deaths were due to, quote, unaccountable reasons. However, for some reason, no further action was taken by the hospital administration or officials at this time. In January 1981, four-month-old Janice Estrella was admitted to SickKids with several serious medical conditions from which she was not expected to recover. As part of her treatment, she was receiving digoxin, a drug commonly used in the cardiac ward to increase circulation and slow heart rates. However, on January 7, 1981, the drug was ordered withheld as it was discovered that she had higher than ordered levels of digoxin in her system. Despite this, when she died four days later on January 11th, her blood showed levels of digoxin 50 times higher than the average therapeutic dose. On March 12, 1981, Kevin Paxai, who was admitted to the hospital for a non life threatening condition from which he was expected to recover, unexpectedly passed away. Upon hearing the news, his father, Kevin Garnett, pounded the walls of Dr. Tepperman's office in grief. It was this death which sparked the inquiry which has now been referred to as, quote, one of the most exhaustive and dramatic criminal ev- investigations in Canadian history. Dr. Fowler, whose office shared a wall with Dr. Tepperman's, suggested that Dr. Tepperman order an autopsy, and Dr. Tepperman did. There was some disagreement in the material available on this case regarding the results of this autopsy. One source says that the autopsy showed no abnormal results at all, and it was Dr. Fowler who discovered that Kevin had died of digoxin toxicity through his own research four days later. However, other sources say that it was the autopsy, in fact, who showed that uh, Kevin had died of digoxin poisoning with levels 13 times higher than the average therapeutic dose Uh, in his blood at the time of his death. However, despite the discrepancy, what is clear is that um, Kevin died of digoxin poisoning and that the levels in his system were extremely high at the time of his death. On March 20th, 1981, Dr. Tupperman received a call from the staff pathologist, Dr. Manier. Dr. Manier had performed the autopsy on Janice Estrella seven, several months earlier. Dr. Manier informed Dr. Tepperman that the lab results had showed digoxin levels of blood in uh, Janice Estrella's blood so high that he thought the lab had made a mistake. Upon hearing of a second death, which involved extremely high levels of digoxin in the same ward, Dr. Tepperman concluded that this could not be merely a coincidence and promptly called his supervisor Ross Bennett. Bennett, who was also Ontario's chief coroner at the time, suggested a meeting with hospital officials and Metro Police Homicide Squad, and this meeting was held the following day on March 21st, 1981. At the meeting, Dr. Tuberman expressed his concern over the two mysterious deaths, and he was surprised to learn that there had already been an inquiry into 22 suspicious deaths in the cardiac wing earlier that year, um, and that the deaths had been deemed due to natural causes. However, after the meeting, the police began investigating um, the deaths of Janice Estrella and Kevin Paxai. Later that night, 11-month-old Alana Miller, who was admitted due to a hole in her heart, among other things, suffered cardiac arrest, and despite resuscitation attempts, she died at 3.27 a.m. the following morning. Test results showed that Alana had digoxin in her blood between 80 to 100 times the normal therapeutic dose. That's insane. Later, on March 22nd, 1981, Justin Cook, who was admitted for congenital malformations, passed away, and despite not being prescribed the drug at all, he died with digoxin levels described by digoxin expert, Dr. Hastrader, as, quote, the highest I've ever encountered. So there's something clearly going on here if he wasn't even prescribed the medication, and he died with the highest level that the digoxin expert had ever encountered. There is now no doubt in Dr. Tepperman's mind that a murderer was at work in the Toronto Hospital for Sick Children. The police, who were already investigating the deaths of Janice Estrella and Kevin Paxai, were called and informed of the two latest deaths and a full-blown investigation was launched. I don't know why the first two deaths was not enough to launch a full-blown investigation, but at least they started at some point. Noting that most of the suspicious deaths had occurred when one group of nurses was on duty, the police ordered that Ward 4 head nurse Elizabeth Rajowski temporarily relieve the nurses on Nurse Phyllis Trainer's team until further notice. Elective admissions to wards 4A and 4B were halted and patients were transferred to other wards until the police investigation took place. Questioning of the five nurses relieved from the cardiac ward began immediately. The police suspicion soon fell on Nurse Susan Nels, due mostly to the fact that they believed that Nels had had exclusive care of Justin Cook on the day that he passed away. They also believed that she had access to the other babies when the fatal no- doses were administered. Nurse Nels was the last of the nurses to be questioned on March twenty second, nineteen eighty one. Knowing that the questioning was coming, Nels reached out to her law school roommate for advice. Her roommate advised her to lawyer up and not answer any questions without consulting a lawyer. Now. This is good advice. However, it would come back to bite Nels in the ass in a big way later. Sergeant Jack Press arrived at Nurse Nell's apartment on the evening of March 22nd and advised Nels that any statement she made during the questioning could be used as evidence against her. According to Austin Cooper, Nell's lawyer, Sergeant Press then said, quote, Okay, Justin Cook died of an overdose of digoxin, a drug he wasn't supposed to have. We believe you gave him the drug and we would like to know why. Do you wish to give any explanation for his being given to digoxin? I mean, can you imagine if that was the first thing that the police asked you? Like, that would be terrifying. Niles then asserted that she wanted to speak to a lawyer and she was immediately arrested on first-degree murder charges for the death of three-month-old Justin Cook. Niles was formally charged with the murder of Justin Cook on March 25th, and two days later on March 27th, she was charged with the deaths of Kevin Paxai, Alana Miller, and Janice Estrella. Now, before we go any further, I wanted to c- quickly give you a little background information on the woman charged with the infamous Sick Kids baby murders. Unfortunately, little is publicly known about Susan Nell's upbringing. However, what is known is that she was raised by two doctors in Belleville, Ontario, and her brother would also grow up to be a, a doctor. Nels herself attended Queen's University, where she graduated in 1978, and this was just three years before she was charged um, with the four murders. Nels moved to Toronto's West End when she got the job at Sick Kids Hospital, and she remained there until the time of her arrest. On March 30th, Nels appeared at a bail hearing where she was released on $50,000 bail and ordered from the court to live with her parents um, in Belleville, Ontario, pending the trial. A few months later, on May 26, she appeared with counsel Austin Cooper in front of Judge Charles Scullion in the Ontario Provincial Court to set a date for the preliminary hearing in the matter. The preliminary hearing was scheduled for October 13, 1981, and Nels was remanded in custody pending the hearing, meaning she was kept in prison um, until her next court date. The pre- preliminary hearing was expected to last two months, if not longer. Crown Attorney Jerry Wiley expected it would take at least a month to to present the prosecution's evidence alone, as much of the evidence was technical, such as lab and autopsy reports. In reality, the preliminary hearing would last a total of 44 days and have a shocking and highly debated ending. The purpose of the preliminary hearing, which was held in the Ontario Provincial Court, was to determine whether the Crown's evidence met the threshold to proceed to trial. The threshold being that the evidence was strong enough to result in a conviction in at least one of the four murder charges facing Nels. If the threshold was met, Susan Nels would stand trial in the Superior Court of Ontario, and if not, there would be no further prosecution, meaning she would be free to live her life. On October 13, 1981, Justice Vanek was tasked with making this determination. The preliminary hearing was held under a publication ban at the request of defense counsel Austin Cooper. The court heard testimony from many of Nell's colleagues, and the Crown's evidence centered around the statements of staff members and hospital records, which demonstrated that Nell's was on duty for most, if not all, of the deaths, and that the deaths seemed to have stopped after she was arrested. Now, this is my favorite part of the story right here. In a bit of a shocking twist, many nurses testified that strange things were happening around the hospital, such as finding strange marks written in red lipstick on hospital doors, staff lockers, and staff vehicles. And Phyllis Trainer even testified that in September of 1981, she found a red cross drawn on her apartment door. Now, it's scary as fuck to see this stuff all around your workplace, but then to have that shit follow you home that would be terrifying. I would probably quit right on the spot. Nurses also reported receiving strange phone calls at the hospital while they were on duty. Um, nurse, 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 Elizabeth Rajowski testified that many nurses feared there was a lunatic on the loose in September of 1981 when two nurses, Phyllis Trainer and Sue Scott, found propanol pills in their food. Now, propanol is another cardiac medication which is used to regulate heart rate, so the nurses had assumed that this medication had been put in their food to cause them serious harm, if not kill them. So could it be that there was a crazed murderer on the loose at the children's hospital and Susan Nels was simply taking the fall for them? According to Justice Vanek, it's very possible. However, back to Nels, colleagues of Nels testified that while most of the nurses were crying after one of the baby's deaths, Nels was, quote, sort of smiling. So that's pretty fucked up. Whether you killed the babies or not, you shouldn't be smiling after um, anyone dies, let alone a freaking baby. The preliminary hearing would reveal that Kevin Paxai, Alana Miller, and Justin Cook were under the direct care of nurse Susan Nels on the day that they passed away. Justin Cook was under the exclusive care of nurse Nels, meaning that he was her only patient for her entire shift that night. However, Nels was not on duty at the time of Janice Estrella's death, and this would become a key point in the defense's case. Janice Estrella, whose digoxin prescription was ordered withheld four days before her death, was found to have 50 times higher the average therapeutic dose of digoxin in her system at the time of her death on January 7th, 1981 at 3.35 a.m. Dr. Hestrader, a University of Illinois cardiac specialist and widely acknowledged expert in digoxin, testified at the preliminary hearing that the fatal dose of digoxin was administered no more than two to four hours prior to her death. And then the defense presented evidence that Susan Nels was off duty eight hours before her death and therefore could not have administered the fatal dose. This is a point that Justice Vanek said was key in his highly controversial and debated decision. In addition, the defense presented evidence that while Justin Cook was under Nell's exclusive care for her entire shift, she was relieved by her supervisor to take breaks, and this created an opportunity for someone else to administer the fatal dose of the drug. Evidence was also presented, which demonstrated that on the day that Kevin Paxai passed away, another girl, Michelle Majanovic, went into cardiac arrest arrest in the ward, and Susan Nels and her su- supervisor, Phyllis Trainer responded to the code and left another nurse in charge of Kevin Paxai and the other babies in room 431. Upon returning to room 431, Nels noticed that Kevin had become rigid and called for the ward resident right away. However, Nell's claimed that the two doctors who responded seemed completely unalarmed of Kevin's condition and merely put a hold on his digoxin dose and ordered a blood test to determine the levels of the drug in his bloodstream. Unsatisfied with this response, the nursing supervisor, Lynn Johnson, convinced ICU resident Dr. Colin Constigan to examine Kevin. However, unfortunately, Dr. Constigan arrived too late, Kevin's heart faltered at 3.45 a.m., and he passed away at 10.10 that morning. The defense counsel also brought forward evidence of Stephanie Lombardo, whose body was exhumed as part of the police's investigation. Stephanie died on December 23, 1980, while Susan Nels was away on Christmas holidays. In fact, Stephanie was admitted after Nels had left for her holidays and died five days before she returned. So Nels never even met this child. Tests conducted on her remains after they were exhumed concluded that she was another of the murder victims. In another shocking twist, the hearing revealed that hospital officials had deliberately misled investigators during their investigation into the deaths. Uh, Hospital officials had lied about not having documents related to an inquest in neonatal Ward 7F. The inquest revealed that in January 1981, one baby and 14 others fell ill sorry, one baby died and 14 others fell ill after receiving doses of adrenaline rather than the vitamin E that they were prescribed. Several newborn infants in the ward were also found to have been given digoxin uh, when they were not prescribed the drug. So why the fuck were the hospital officials lying about this other ward where there were also babies being given digoxin who weren't supposed to have it? It seems like they were just wanted Susan Nels to go down for the crime so that they could place the blame on someone and the press nightmare would be over. Susan Nells was discharged at the end of the preliminary hearing due to lack of sufficient evidence. Justice Vanek discharged her and stated, quote, there is no direct evidence of any act on the part of Susan Nells tending to show that she was involved in poisoning these babies by overdose of digoxin. No evidence either of any suspicious or untoward conduct of consciousness of guilt or cover-up, and all of her actions are perfectly consistent with the due and proper performance of her regular duties as a registered nurse. In his judgment, he further stated that, quote, We are dealing with an aberrant, twisted, warped personality, someone who poisons babies at a hospital with digoxin, and strange things might be expected to happen. So I think it's safe to say that he's referencing the testimony of all the nurses who think that there was a lunatic loose in the hospital in 1981. And at this point, that seems way more likely than the fact that Susan Nels had anything to do with these murders. Justice Bannock criticized the Crown's arguments as being somewhat circular when they suggested that although Susan Nels was off duty when Janice Estrella was given her fatal dose, she must have been responsible for Janice Estrella's death because she was obviously responsible for the for the other deaths. Um, and Justice Vanek stated, quote, The evidence discloses quite the contrary that instead of the Cook case explaining Estrella, the Estrella case explains Cook. If she didn't kill Estrella, she didn't kill Paxai, Cook, or Miller either. In closing, Vanek stated that the hearing had proved that the four murders which Nels had been accused of and the fifth um, death of Stephanie Lombardo had in fact been committed. And the only qu- remaining question he said is, who did it? After Nels was discharged, Ontario Attorney General Roy McMurphy called for a public inquiry. The goals of the public inquiry were to investigate how the babies died, why Nels was arrested, and to provide the public with the fullest accounting of what happened. So this sounds like something that they should do after like all unsolved cases. The police also decided to reopen the investigation into the 43 suspicious deaths after Nels was discharged. On December 14th, 1982, six months after Nels had been discharged, the police announced that they had new leads. However, the leads evidently did not lead anywhere, as this case is obviously still unsolved. And uh, on February 9th, 1983, the police chief, Jack Aykroyd, stated that the Metro Police still did not have enough evidence to lay any further charges. The CDC released a report on their investigation into the deaths in February 1983, the report claimed that of the 36 deaths in the hospital's cardiac wards between July 1980 and March 1981, 18 of them were suspicious. Of the 18 suspicious deaths, they found that digoxin overdose probably caused seven of them. And the report also named a nurse that was in the cardiac ward when all of the 28 most suspicious deaths occurred, and it wasn't Susan Nellis. On April 21, 1983, the public inquiry began. The inquiry, which was presided over by Justice Samuel Grange uh, and a specially convened Royal Commission, would come to be known as the Grange Inquiry. The commission had subpoena power, but the Ontario Public Act prevented Justice Grange from making a finding of any criminal or civil wrongdoing. In stark contrast to the publication ban that surrounded the preliminary hearing, Justice Grange permitted TV and radio reporters to be present and record the entire proceeding. So as you can imagine, this was an absolute media frenzy. Kevin Cox, one of the two journalists sitting in on the grand inquiry every day, said, it was the most bizarre murder case I think we'll ever see in this country. You can't sensationalize this. You've got mass murder of innocent little babies, quite possibly by someone who was taking care of them, a case that's impossible to crack. And I literally couldn't have said it better myself. Like. No wonder this case was a media frenzy. It's literally mass murder of babies, like 36 suspicious deaths. That is crazy. Who the fuck is out there murdering any babies, let alone 36 babies and babies who are going to likely die anyways. Like That is so fucked up and it takes a seriously twisted individual to do that. Kevin Cox was also quoted saying, Grange tried in every way he possibly could to get to the bottom of what happened to those kids, and he had to take people right through the emotional ringer, and he did. So good on you, Justice Grange. The inquiry investigated the deaths of 36 babies who died in cardiac ward units 4A and 4B between June 30th, 1980 and March 22nd, 1981. In total, 64 witnesses testified, and transcripts of the proceeding would total Forty-four thousand pages. Testimony during the inquir- inquiry, inquiry, inquiry. I don't. Did I just have a stroke? <laughs> um, testimony during the inquiry turned focus on Phyllis Trainer, who was the leader of Susan Nell's nursing team. Nurse Bertha Bell testified that on March twentieth, nineteen eighty-one, around midnight, she saw Phyllis Trainer inject Alana Miller with an Unidentified drug via her intravenous bottle feeder. The baby, who was assigned to nu- nurse Susan Nell's duty that night, died at 3:27 a.m. And the autopsy showed a larger amount of digoxin in her body than had been ordered. So it literally seems like Bertha Bell caught Susan—or sorry, Phyllis Trainer—red-handed right there. Like, hello. It was already proved that it wasn't Susan Nell, so. Clearly, it's Miss Phyllis Trainer, but anyways, according to Bell, the nurse's notes and the chart did not reflect the injection she saw Trainer giving um, Alana Miller. And Bell said that in April nineteen eighty one, she tried to tell this to the police and tell the police that Nels was not present when another baby died of digoxin overdose, but claimed that the police literally just were not interested in what she had to say. So that's really fucked up. I can't, like, can you imagine you're going to be like, yeah, no, she wasn't even there when one of the babies died. And also like, oh, um, yeah, no, actually I saw this other nurse giving Alana Miller that injection and the police were like, mm, that's okay. We're still going to go after her anyways. What? <laughs> like, fuck. Bad day to be Susan Nels. Nurse Kathy Kusel testified that before Nels was arrested, she thought Trainer was behind the baby deaths. Other nurses also claimed that Trainer was so obsessed with the deaths that her co-workers found her hard to work with. So all fingers are really pointing to Phyllis, Phyllis Trainer here. I keep butchering her name, but still, all fingers are pointing to her. It was also revealed in the Grange inquiry that the um, CDC report, which I had mentioned earlier, that named a nurse who was present for 28 of the most suspicious baby deaths, well, the nurse that they named was Phyllis Trainer. So, ding, ding, ding. I don't know why this is still an unsolved case. It looks like I just solved it right here. Testimony regarding Trainer became very controversial during the inquiry. The Canadian Civil Liberties Union accused the inquiry of becoming a trial. And Nell's new lawyer, John Sapinka, complained that witnesses were giving opinions about who they thought was responsible for the deaths and those being named were not get, being given a chance to reply. The matter was raised all the way to the Ontario Court of Appeal uh, where the judge confirmed that Justice Drange can name anyone who he finds to have administered digoxin overdoses. Thank fucking God, isn't that the whole point of this inquiry? After the nurses testified, the focus of the inquiry shifted to the conduct of the police and it was at this point that Nels made an appearance at the inquiry for the first time. The entire time that she was present, in the courtroom, the courtroom camera was focused on her face. Nels testified that the police seemed completely uninterested of any evidence that suggested that she was not guilty. In his long-awaited report, Justin Scrange confirmed that Justin Cook, Kristen Wood, whose post-mortem to level was the highest ever recorded, along with Alana Miller, Kevin Paxai, Janice Estrella, Jordan Hines, Stephanie Lombardo, and Jesse Belanger all died of digoxin toxicity. In total, he concluded that eight babies had been murdered by dig- deliberate digoxin overdose. He also concluded that five deaths were highly suspicious of digoxin toxicity, meaning, quote, those who I believe died of an overdose of digoxin, but for whom there exists no reliable toxicological data to support this belief. These included Laura Woodcock, Amber Dawson, Antonio Velasquez, John Onifer, and Rael Gosselin. Finally, he named ten more babies who he, whose deaths he deemed suspicious of digoxin overdose. In these deaths, the terminal events were consistent with digoxin overdose, and there was other evidence pointing in the direction of digoxin overdose. However, there was not enough evidence for it to be conclusive. These deaths included David Taylor, Philip Turner, Dion Shrum, Brian Gage, Richard McKell, Darcy MacDonald, Jennifer Thomas, Colleen Warner, Barbara Giannis, and Charlon Gardner. The remaining deaths were attributed to natural or undesignated causes. Just like Justice Velasquez, Justice Grange found no guilt on the part of Susan Nell's and concluded that the police thought that she was guilty going into the interview on March 22, 1981. Now, here is where you're going to find out how Nell's asking for a lawyer um, bit her in the ass. Justice Grange claimed that when Nell's refused to answer any questions without speaking to a lawyer, something that he said was undoubtedly within her rights to do. This further confirmed her guilt in the eyes of the police and led to her arrest. However, he did find fault on the part of the Crown. In his conclusion, he stated that the Crown was holding on to an untenable theory in their prosecution of Susan Nell's, despite evidence that clearly proved she was not guilty. Grange was also asked to give his opinion on whether Susan Nells was entitled to compensation. He recommended that she be compensated for her legal fees and client costs from the time of her arrest to the discharge from her preliminary hearing. However, unfortunately, he did not name an individual who he thought was responsible for administering the overdoses. Now, why he did not name Phyllis Trainer is completely beyond me, She was literally caught red-handed giving a dose of a medication that she did not record to a baby who later died with high levels of digoxin. Like, ding, 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 we have a winner. I mean, fuck, that sounded awful. Not a winner because winners don't fucking murder 36 babies. But um, we have a perpetrator, I should say. Now, although Susan Nels had been discharged from the preliminary hearing and again not proven responsible at the Grange inquiry, her legal battle was far from over. After the preliminary hearing, and even more so after the Grange inquiry, the police fell under heavy criticism for arresting Nels without fully questioning her and for charging her with the other three murders, despite a lack of clear evidence that connected her with those babies. Now, Susan Nels brought a civil action against the Crown of Ontario, the Attorney General for Ontario, and several members of the Metro Police. She claimed that the Ontario Attorney General and his agents aided and abetted the police in charging and prosecuting her and that they acted in malice, so otherwise known as a suit for malicious prosecution. The proceedings were later discontinued against the Metro Police after she settled with them for $190,000 in 1985. However, the action against the Crown and the Ontario Attorney General continued. Before trial, the respondents, i.e. the Crown and the Ontario Attorney General, brought a motion to have the action dismissed against them due to what they claimed was no probable cause of action. Now, they won this motion and Nell's pleadings were struck, but Nell's appealed this decision and the Court of Appeal agreed with the trial judge and left her pleadings struck. But Susan Nels, being the badass that she is, didn't give up and she appealed the matter all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. On February 29th, 1988, the Supreme Court of Canada was tasked with determining whether the Crown, the Ontario Attorney General, and the Crown Attorney had prosecutorial, prosecutorial immunity, which is an absolute immunity given to prosecutors for initiating and prosecuting and presenting a case. On August 14, 1989, the Supreme Court reached a decision. Uh, they determined that the Crown had absolute immunity from suits for malicious prosecution. However, the Ontario Attorney General did not. The matter was ordered returned to the Superior Court of Ontario for a trial on the malicious prosecution claim. Two years later, Nell settled with the Ontario Attorney General for the total of her accumulated legal fees, which amounted to $60,000. With this money, she endowed a Queen's University scholarship in her name and added to the Nell's Family Endowment Fund at the Belleville General Hospital. And this fund was created to honor her father and brother, who were both doctors at that hospital and had sadly passed away during her legal proceedings. Fast forward all the way to November 2011, Gavin Hamilton published a book where he claimed that the deaths at the Toronto Sick Kids Hospital were not from a serial killer at all, and rather they were due to a toxin found in natural rubber that had been used in medical equipment during the 80s. Gavin criticizes the testing used to discover digoxin toxicity in the babies in the 80s, saying it was based on a single biochemical test and that there was no knowledge of normal values at the time. I mean, that's easy to say when there's literally like 40 extra years of research, or not at that time, 30 extra years of research. Hamilton claims that a digoxin-like substance found in natural rubber may have been the cause of the death in 1980 and 1981. So, was there really a loon to take on the loose at Sick Kids Hospital in 1981? It would account for the strange marks on the hospital doors, lockers, and on Phyllis Trainer's apartment door. Um, the strange phone calls that the nurses were receiving, the fact that babies in another ward were been, were given adrenaline and joxin. However, the thought that a lunatic was on the loose, just killing babies left, right, and center in the eighties, is just truly unbelievable. Or was it Phyllis Trainer who was responsible? According to the CDC, she was present for 28 of the most suspicious deaths. And that other nurse literally fucking saw her red-handed giving an injection that she didn't record to Alana Miller on the day that she died. But what about the other murders that she wasn't present for? Or could there have been no murderer at all? And it was a toxin in rubber that was the culprit all along. Personally, I think it was Phyllis Trainer. She was caught red-handed. She was there for most of the suspicious deaths. And I think she was out there doing all this crazy shit just to cover up the fact that she was a freaking psychopath killing babies. She was also obsessed with all the deaths and people found her so obsessed with it that she found they found her hard to work with. So that's just fucking alarming in its own, let alone when you combine it with everything else. But hey, that's just what I think. If you have a theory about this case, I would absolutely love to hear it. So please feel free to email me, reach out to me on Twitter, I will or Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'll leave all that information down below in the show notes. Thank you guys all so much for tuning in. Um, I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please like, review, subscribe, all of that good stuff. If you didn't, I would love to know why please keep the criticism constructive. Um, Until next time, this is unsolved, unjust, and unbelievable. Oops, that's not the name of my show. Until next time, it is unsolved, unbelievable, and just. Thank you so much for tuning in.